in college, so I'm a graduate here of the University of Montana. Go broadcast journalism. Uh, and my senior year, I was the producer of a PBS documentary called Connecting the 406. And the goal of the film was to show how internet, specifically its ability to connect and communicate, is changing the landscape of rural Montana, like win it. Um, and the, the film looked at everything from online dating to massive multiplayer role-playing games to cattle auctions and remote workspaces. And what was happening is these resources, which were once not available, um, were now being made available to places that previously had no connection to it. Um, and at that point, the ramifications of this social media was huge. And even, even with that, Twitter was only four years old at this time. Facebook was, or YouTube was only five years old. And now, if we take what we saw back then and put it forward to today, we see the, like, we are just in the midst of the social media network. The implications of it, the, the way in which we're connected to it, is starting. You are connected to more people today on your phone than people have been connected to anyone in all of human history. You can talk to people that has, it's just, you go back 50 years, and it's mind-numbing the amount of people that we can talk to today. In fact, you go back to 2007 and you think about the main players. So a decade ago, there were five social media sites. At that point, Facebook, MySpace, Twitter, and YouTube, and Skype's included in there. And Skype wasn't even really like a social media site. It was uh, a medium for Skyping, right? That's where we get the word from. So those five. But now look at today. I found this graphic online. It's super distorted. But those are all the social media sites that are majorly trafficked in our world today. And you can't see them, but what you see is there's more than five. And they have it for all sorts of different reasons. It is part of who we are, so much so that the World Economic Forum posted an article recently highlighting six ways that social media is changing our world. And these changes cover everything from advertisements in the business world to human rights, to climate change, healthcare, banking, and government. And so the question is, is you look at that picture that was up there and you look at what's on your phone, you look what's on your computer, you look at the amount of people you weekly have interactions with, how is it that this catalyst of the internet is so powerful in our culture? It is reshaping everything. And yet, I don't think it's the internet which is powerful. You see, the internet and social media doesn't have any power. Instead, what it exposes is the power of the human heart, the power that we have in our desire to connect, to relate, to be known, and to know those who are like us. We want to participate with people. We want to share with people. And yet, despite this great tool which is in our midst, we still run into issues, don't we? Globally, locally, interpersonally. If anyone picked up the Kaiman this week, we see the issues that social media is having even sexually and interpersonally with us. It's creating harm, it's mangling, it's destroying, and we're still divided. You look at the instant connectivity and updates that we have of knowing what's going on. We've got more watchdog control over politics and movements than we ever have before, but look no further than this last week in our own country. There are issues. We are so connected, but we are also so shattered. We are so divided. And this digital connectivity is not only shaping what we see on our phone or on TV or with our computers, it's actually shaping the way in which we relate to people in the real world. 
And we're just now beginning to understand the science behind how our relationships and our brains are being rewired to think about community. But all this to say, social media and the internet and the connectivity that comes there, it's not bad or good. All it is, it's a vessel for our own affection. So here's what we have to consider. Is there's not one single culture that is raised up and said, I want to be hostile, I want to be hateful, and I want to be closed-minded. They all think they're working for the opposite of those things. And yet, what we can see is oftentimes the way in which we pursue relationships with one another end up being hostile, hateful, and closed-minded. So when you think about your own friendships, when you think about your own communities, how are you so sure that the way in which you're relating to people is part of the solution and not part of the problem? How do we know that in our desire to relate to one another, we're relating to care for one another instead of relating to consume one another? You see, these are important questions that every worldview has to answer but they're even more important for those who consider themselves believers. How relevant is your faith in Jesus Christ to your friends and your community, to those who are closest to you, to those you have relationships with at school, at work, or with sports or hobbies? And think of it this way. If you today decided uh, that everything you knew about the gospel was a farce, and you turned your back on the faith and you walked away, how different would your relationships be? And not just who would you be relating with, but what would actually be different about the structure and content of your relationships? What would be different about your online personality and your media consumption habits? You see, today we're going to argue that Christianity is actually essential to understanding the importance of the global desire for community and friendship. Because it's only Christianity that reveals to us the true uh, beauty of community and what we're actually all longing for inside of that community. And if you've been with us <coughs> for the start of this series through, you kind of know our method already. What we're doing is we're taking universal themes and we're looking at how Christianity impacts the way we think about that. Christianity is not something you leave outside of your thoughts, but it's the light that illuminates everything you're looking at. And so we look at three questions. How does the Bible explain our desires for friendships and communities? How does the gospel renew our desires for friendship and community? And then how does the church, that is those who are saved and love Jesus, how does the church embody friendship and community? So let me pray real quick and then we're going to look at the first question. So Lord, you have, <coughs> um, you've made us specifically. You've made us in this room specifically. Uh, Every affection we have in our hearts is either a right response or a wrong response to affections that you've woven into the human DNA. Lord, we cannot think or act or do anything apart from the way in which you've created us. So we ask that you help us to see the true purpose and the true beauty behind all of our heart's affections. We pray that in this room, that on this campus, these students are able to pursue community and have friendships which change the world because they've been changed by Jesus. So Lord, we ask that you be gracious to us today as we continue to look at this. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So, excuse me, I got something in my throat. 
Uh, if you've been with us the last three weeks, you are probably so sick of Genesis chapter 2. Because every time when we go, how does the Bible define this? We end up in Genesis chapter 2. But that's because Genesis chapter 2 is the Pinterest perfect version of the way in which God created us. It's the, the, the natural state before sin confused things, before relationships muddled things, before pain and suffering complicated things. It is a picture of how and why things are supposed to work and why they work. In fact, so we have six weeks looking at this, five of those six universal experiences that we have can be traced right back to the garden before sin. In fact, the only one that's not found in Genesis 2 is, is sin and suffering. Those are the only two things that didn't exist inside the garden. So when we experience things, our experience of things help us understand God, but we understand that in submission to who God is. Who God is shapes our experience of what it is we're feeling, right? If you experience pain at the hand of a doctor, your understanding of that doctor shapes how you experience that pain. You can trust it. If you experience pain in a dark alley at night at the hands of like a shanker, is that a word or a person? I don't know. That pain means something else. <laughs> this has gone haywire and off my notes. Uh, but the point is, when you understand God right, your experience is different. And so when we, under, when we encounter things like desires for contributions and education and romance and community and joy, when we understand the God who made us, we're best able to process what's actually happening to us. And if you remember from last week, we saw this passage. So we are back in Genesis 2. Verses 18 through 20. Then the Lord God said, <clears throat> It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beast of the field. But for Adam, that is the man, there's not found a helper fit for him. So we spent last week looking at this text through a specific uh, theme. And actually the most specific truth that this is talking about is it's describing not only the creation of another person, but the creation of a woman who was to be Adam's wife. God created Eve not simply to be a person, not simply to be a woman, but to be someone who was created human as a woman and to be Adam's wife. She was the helper we looked at last week that no animal could have ever been to Adam. And it is true that marriage between a man and a woman is the highest level of relationships we can experience. Because as we saw last week, there's this one flesh, there's this commitment between each other and before God and this one fleshness that happens inside of marriage that doesn't happen in other relationships. It is the highest level of relationships. However, while Genesis 2 shows the ultimate human relationship, it doesn't show the only human relationship. In fact, it shows that even in perfection, before sin came, that man was not meant to live alone, but to live with other people. God made man inside of a community. He made him to relate to others because he was made in the image of God. See, understanding God explains this. When we understand God, God existed eternally in triune perfection. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We even see that if you look back at Genesis 1 verse 26, God uses a plural pronoun in talking about himself. He says, let us make man in our own 
image. So when God created, he wasn't up in heaven bored. He wasn't lonely. He didn't have an emotional void that he sought to fill. He actually created us out of an overflow of his satisfaction he had in the Trinity and wanted us to enjoy that. That's why he tasked Adam and Eve to expand the garden so that other people could come in and experience the joyful relationship of God himself. We also know that when God said it was good, it was not good for Adam to be alone, so he must be married, that that is not a universal call to marriage in humanity. When God said it was not good for Adam to be alone, he looked at that man and he looked at that specific task that he gave Adam to fill, to multiply, and to subdue the earth. And he said, for this Adam, there is not only a need for companionship, but a specific companion, a wife. And so in seeing this, it doesn't mean that to be human, you must be married. It doesn't mean to be Christian, you must be married. But Jesus was single. Paul was single. You might be single. And I doubt that any of you single people are less human than the married people in here. It is true that we can be single and be fully Christian and fully human. And yet, we do have to realize that we experience at some level desires for community, even apart from romance. We experience these desires to be with or have fellowship with one another. And we're in Montana, and there's kind of this persona of the mountain man living in the woods. But even the mountain man of all mountain men, you think of Ansel Adams, who loved to live hermit-like in the mountains of Yosemite. He took pictures, and he wrote books, not for himself, but for others. Even he lived in the shadow of community, wanting others to experience what it was that he was experiencing. You see, we were meant to live. Humanity in the perfect image was meant to live in unity with God, in unity with others, in perfect existence without conflict. There was this net of relationships that held everything together. We had perfect unity between man and man, but that was because men had perfect relationship with God. And so there was nothing imperfect, there was no stumbling block, there was no arrogance, there was no selfishness, there was no hatred, because God was with us and we were satisfied in him. And that is why social media is huge, because it capitalizes on these basic and powerful longings to know and to be known by those who are around us. It's preying on, just put it in a negative light, It's preying on the very threads which God has asked us to be satisfied in himself before we ever relate to others. And we don't have to look far in the Bible to see where these these overwhelming longings for community became obstacles. You see, in community, God tasked Adam and Eve and their offspring to fill the earth, right? For God to task Adam to fill the earth and to not give him a wife, it would have been fruitless. But God gave him a wife and said, fill the earth. And so he wanted Adam and Eve and their offspring and their offspring to do it. He wanted this community to go forward with this task, to expand the world so that they might enjoy the beauty of God and God might be worshiped by the nations. But then Genesis 3 came. We've looked at that. The serpent deceived Eve and Adam. And in that moment, as we saw last week, sin began to pollute not only the relationships, but the whole community. Sin corrupted the first pure friendship between a husband and a wife. And we see the, the, the birth effects of sin if we fast forward to Genesis chapter 11, where it says this, a story you may have heard before. 
Now the whole earth, beginning in chapter 11, verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So we're going to continue in the story, but did you see the two perversions of what God already commissioned in the garden? Right? In the garden, God made man to make much of him. God was to be glorified. God was to be the center of it. And here they seek to make a name for themselves. In the garden, God seeks to send Adam and Eve out to expand it, to fill it, to work, to labor, so that other people could come in. But here we see they want to labor so that they could stay put. They want to work so that they might have a city for themselves. And we continue inside of this. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. I love that. God, it's, it's, our, it's intentionally condescending to these people who are wanting to build a city and a tower, and God comes down to see what the kids are building, right? What are the children of man building? And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So one thing I just want to address there is we see God saying, well, nothing will be impossible for them. God is not threatened by them, right? We already saw this with how God called them little kids. God's not threatened by them. God's not worried that they're going to overtake him and become God and their tower's going to reach to the heaven and lead a, a, an insurrection. But he is showing that man's desire for community, because that's what they wanted, for us to do this, to have our city, to make a name for ourselves, that the desire for community is so strong that when it is detached from the glory of God, that God would be praised, and the goal of God, that others would worship him, that it can do immense and immeasurable damage. That they would have done so much harm for all of humanity. You see, what the men thought was best in this story was actually what was worse. It was not good for man to try to be God, because they can never be God. It was not good for man to attempt to get to heaven because man could never attempt to be to heaven. Man was attempting to build a community and call it life all the while he was standing in his own grave. And it wouldn't have been loving for God to allow them to continue to do that. You see, we all do that in some sense. We're drawn to community and we become in a sense obsessive about it because we seek to find something in it. And it's interesting because it's not just community that we seek to find. In that community, we seek to find acceptance. In that community, we seek to find love. In that community, we seek to find purpose. And what happens is if we are let to pursue things, thinking that they will give us God things, we will never be satisfied. 
The people at Babel, they would never find peace, though everybody would have been willing to labor for it. They would never find salvation, though everyone would have thrown their bodies down on the tower, convinced that it would save them. So God, in both judgment and in mercy, he scattered the peoples and confused their languages so that they might not be unified towards sin. And even today, we see the great barrier of languages, right? We see the conflict that it produces. That one of, one of the greatest, uh, how many of you have called tech support and haven't understood a thing on the other end of the phone? And how frustrated do we get at that? Right? That's a sign of this confusion. That's a sign of the, the problem that comes when races are in conflict or there's geographical arrogance. This is all the result of sin. And so here we see the Bible explaining our desire and also explaining why it is we get so frustrated when we can't. I've heard my grandpa yell, let me talk to someone who speaks English so many times on the phone. It explains our frustration with, with languages. It explains our frustration with our friends. It explains our frustration with communities. It explains our divided hearts. But the gospel helps us to see clearly what sin has distorted. And this is the second question. How does the gospel renew our desire for community and friendship. We see the origin. We can make sense that God liked it. We can see what sin did to pervert it, but how does the gospel renew it? Sin perverts our friendships because we lose sight of what is ultimately good for us and good for others. Right? Why is it that you think you have fights with your roommates? Why is it at times that you're so frustrated with even your closest friends? Well, the Bible answers that question for us. In James 4, he says, Why is it, my brothers, that there are fights and quarrels among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You see, we fight and we quarrel because we want different things. You might think that, that going to, I was doing pre-marriage with a couple earlier this week, and they described this conflict that they had. He thought that staying home and watching football was going to bring him satisfaction. She thought that going to this baby shower with him would bring her satisfaction. Both of them wanted satisfaction, but because they saw satisfaction as different, this conflict existed between them. And that's where all of our conflict comes from, is that our hearts are at war, not only with God, but also with others. But when Jesus came, Jesus came to took the punishment of that sin. Our sin, the hatred we have towards those other people that we never seek to admit it is only a fraction of the hatred our hearts have towards God before we're saved, of rejecting him. And the wages of that sin is death. But Jesus came to take that punishment and in rising again, Jesus began to wage war on the effects of sin. You see, after Jesus had risen from the dead and before he ascended to heaven, he's like, you guys, wait stay here in Jerusalem until, he, he used this word that they probably had no idea what he was talking about. He says, until the promise of the Father comes. And then he left. They're like, can you be more detailed, please? What are we waiting for? So the disciples didn't know, but they trusted. They knew who Jesus was, and so it made sense of their experience of doubt. And so they, so they stayed put. They stayed in Jerusalem. And we pick up this story in Acts chapter two. That's not Acts. There we go. When the day of Pentecost arrived, which was, arrived, which was a Jewish feast, they were all together. Why were they together? Because Jesus told them to wait. They were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here we see kind of this odd encounter. So we have these people waiting for the promise of the Father, and we see what Jesus meant by that. Jesus had promised that a helper would come. Jesus promised he would never leave them, and yet they just saw Jesus ascend. But here comes the Holy Spirit. For the first time, the Holy Spirit is not separate from believers, is not separate from those who are saved, but has come to live with all the believers. And they begin to speak in what they call tongues. And oftentimes in some of the epistles, they reference speaking in tongues, and we don't know what kind of tongues it is they're talking about or what they mean when they say it. But here, the context helps us understand what it means when these men began to speak in tongues. And look at what they meant, beginning in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Ferga, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. You see, the cool thing is this event, which, which is called Pentecost, it's the reverse Babel, where in sin... Languages were scattered. In salvation, languages are overcome by the power of the gospel. You you read that list of names from everywhere and everywhere and everywhere and everywhere. And people are like, these guys are all Galilean. They're not world travelers. They're not linguistic scholars. And yet we're hearing them proclaim the mighty works of God in our own tongue. They weren't speaking a language which was undiscernible. They were speaking languages which men knew. Now, this event, it's not normative, okay? I know lots of missionaries, and many of them wish they could just get dropped into a foreign culture and speak that tongue. But being a Christian does not mean you're automatically linguistically blessed. That's the task, and that's the labor of Bible translators and missionaries to go forward and to wrestle with language barriers and work with bringing the word of God to them. And actually, on October 11th, so here in a few weeks, we're going to have a missions week here at GCF, and we're going to hear some missions going on in Italy. Um, But that's the task, is taking this gospel to the nations. And yet, this is an encouraging event for missionaries. and should be an encouraging event for us. Because while this event isn't normal or to be expected, it also gives us a glimpse at what the experience of redemption is like. Redemption brings greater unity towards men by restoring men to God. And the cool thing about this event is is our culture, we are so hot takey with everything we put on Twitter and blogs and on Facebook. Where it's like if we could all just get together and be one thing, that would be great. And yet, in this picture, God doesn't give everyone one language. He kept the diversity of the languages, but he bridged the gap with the power 
of the gospel. God didn't make everyone Jewish. He didn't make everyone Greek. He didn't make everyone black or white, but the diversity was bound in unity through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel doesn't call us to flatten our differences. The gospel calls us to see our differences, but see what Christ has done to overcome them. You see, only in the gospel can diversity and unity be found in perfect balance because whether white or black, African or Chinese, we are all sinners and all offered salvation through one source, Jesus Christ. You see, our various passions are what disrupt community. I wake up when my kids cry at night. They want to be tucked back in. I want to go back to bed. The warring of passions. But when Jesus and the glory of God is our singular passion, we can begin to lay aside lesser ones as we pursue to the same end the glory of God. You see, you look at the gospel and there's no place where diversity flourishes in perfection like in the salvation of Jesus Christ. Show me a movement in our world which has brought together men and women like the gospel. Show me a system of belief which has connected rich and poor like the gospel. I, I was just laughing the other day. At one point, there was this 34-year-old steampunk rocker who would wear steampunk goggles, a top hat, and long hair to church who was in the community group of a PhD guy from Columbia. Where else is that ever going to happen? And they were friends. Show me another place where young and old come to worship. Show me a politician who can bridge gaps, leap languages, and restore relationships like Jesus can. And that's because only Jesus can fix the problem that's at the heart of every one of us. Jesus changes our community because he is the source of satisfaction unending. I heard one pastor use this illustration once, and it's totally true in my own heart, and I've caught myself doing it. I go to get ice cream for my wife because she's pregnant, and so it's like the fourth, fifth, and sixth meal each day. Um, and so I, I get ice cream, and I bring it to her, and of course I get myself some because that would be like equality, right? Um, and so I'm walking to my room, and I'm like weighing which one has more ice cream in it for me, right? And you don't do that and be like, well, this has more. She'll love this. Um, and, and I'm So here I'm like thinking I'm doing this great act of service, but I'm still acting immensely selfish in it. Why? Because there's like a finite amount of ice cream in this cup. If there's a battle for who gets more, I want more of it. But the beautiful thing is if we realize our greatest joy is in Jesus Christ, there is no end to the well of joy that Jesus gives us. So we can serve others and give to others, never at a threat of losing out for our own joy. You see, our problem isn't that we can't get along with each other. Our problem is, is that when we are enemies of God, we are desperate to find satisfaction in anything, and we will lie, cheat, scratch, and steal to restore that to ourselves. But in the gospel, Jesus restores us to each other by restoring us to God. He brings us back to the garden, even if we still have to live among thorns before we are finally and ultimately redeemed. See, this is what Paul meant. In Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, for he, that is Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
You see, if you want true friendship, if you want true community, you must know true salvation. Otherwise, our hearts will always wrestle. They'll always be frustrated with the idea that we have to live with sinners, that we have to live with people who are different than us. How many times, even just looking at our friends' Instagram posts or Pinterest pages, I take that from my wife, I don't have a Pinterest page, um, or, or Twitter follows, and even for our closest friends, we are jealous of that. But in the gospel, we can let all of those go. You see, how do you view your friends and your communities? If you view them only as creatures which provide comfort or satisfaction, then they are only consumables for you. And you're not seeing the weight of salvation that that passage shows. C.S. Lewis says this, one of my favorite lines, um, many lines actually from C.S. Lewis, where he says this, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendor. So they're saying immortal punishment in hell or eternal joy in heaven. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. See, the truth is, we could stop looking for the Holy Grail, because everyone's going to live forever. But it's just a matter of where it is you'll spend eternity. And what Lewis is saying here is that you can't have those kind of thoughts of cherishing the eternality of your friends if you don't see the beauty of the gospel. You see, in the gospel, we can see true friendship because we see what it means to truly care for the weight of the person in front of us. In the gospel, we see true friendship because we know that in service, even to the uttermost, we will suffer no loss in laying down our lives for those around us. So if we see that picture and compelled by that vision, what do we do with it? How do we live this out in a way which is distinct and refreshing in a world where it's consumption? There's a, there's a poster out there I just saw for a graduate level class through the Honors College called The History of Consumerism in America. There is not one thing which, which typifies the American experience except for consumerism. And I would say that it is so ingrained in who we are that we treat our friends like commodities to be consumed instead of souls to be savored and cared for. So how is it that we are to live differently? This is the last point. How does the church embody community? Okay, I want to give two points here in closing. The first point is how is it that we interact with fellow believers, if you're a believer in here, and the second is how you interact with those who are not believers. So first... For those who are believers, we model true community towards one another as the church. You see, what Eden showed, what Babel perverted, and what Pentecost predicted is that Jesus saves a people. Jesus didn't come to save one person. If a series I want to do here at Someday is called, uh, the only word I can think of is uh, corny. Corny, cliche, catchphrases of Christianity. Four C's, Okay. How many of you have heard, man, if, it only, if Jesus came to only save one person, it would have been worth it? 
Jesus did, thank you for raising your hand. We've all seen that. <laughs> but I didn't want to make it sound like I was yelling at Desiree now. No! <laughs> um, but Jesus didn't come to save one person. He died for everyone individually. When Jesus died, he knew the sins of Tyler Vlean. He reached through a history and broke the dividing wall of Tyler Vlean's heart. He knows me intimately, wonderfully, and lovely. But he didn't die for Tyler Vlean. He died for the whole of his people. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not limited by his ability to persuade one or two, but it will be typified by the salvation of his church. God sent Jesus to die for his church, for his people, from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And it is the task of the church and the mission and power of Jesus which will bring about the salvation of those. And those redeemed people who are bought by the blood of Jesus, they can constitute what's called the global church. So we are members of the church with believers in Somalia and in the Sudan and in Indonesia. They are part of the church. But also locally, we see this in the New Testament, the model of local believers gathering as the local church. Okay, the Greek word for church, it just means assembly or gathering. It's not this idea community, but it is this physical community which comes together to celebrate and encourage one another as what is the heart and source of true community, eternal community, beautiful community, heavenly community will look surprisingly similar to our Sunday gatherings. You realize that? See, in Revelation, we get a picture of what heaven will be like. Heaven, when you think heaven, don't think what culture identifies with heaven in terms of harps and clouds, but think of what the emotions culture wants you to feel, which is ultimate satisfaction and joy. That same ultimate satisfaction and joy, when we look at Revelation, is God's people gathered together, singing praises and worshiping the Jesus who saved them. And so we get tired, right? We've got so many hours in a week. There's so many things vying for our attention. There's so many homework assignments and fun things that we want to do. And when Sunday morning comes around, if it's not burrito Sunday, it can be hard to get out of bed that Sunday morning. But when it's hard and when it seems worthless and even when it seems awkward, remember that when you are gathering as God's church, you are given the opportunity to practice for eternity, to reap the benefits of heaven here on earth. So you look at what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 22 through 25. Let us draw near with a true, and so look at the pronouns, they're all plural. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I want to be really practical here. How can we at GCF begin to model community? Well, here's how. Is you can begin to treat the eternity of your friends as the most important thing about them. And you can encourage them to be part of God's church. You see, Lewis was right about the weight of eternity and eternality. But if we neglect our own eternity and the eternity of our friends by failing to prepare them for heaven, then we are no friend at all. 
But going to church is where we gather to hear the word of God. Going to church is where we gather to express our worship together, to be encouraged, to practice the Lord's Supper. And being in church with your brothers and sisters in Christ also means having long conversations about their relationship with God, about sin in their life, about struggles, about reality. So I want to say, I did this absolutely horribly in college. I was on staff with the church in my college years, and I was probably an okay youth pastor. I was a terrible college Christian. I lived with guys I went to high school with. I went to a Christian high school, and I had this many conversations with them in my four years about Jesus. We went to the same church. We did the same things, and I never once cared for their eternal souls by encouraging them in the faith. I outsourced it. And church will do that. Their college ministry will do that. But these are my friends. It should be my joy to help them see with greater clarity the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I pray that you will be a better friend than I was in college. That you would encourage one another as the church and for the church so that the glory of God might be seen by those around you. And we are get the privilege of gathering together as the church. And second, because we know the eternality of humans and in judgment or salvation, we proclaim the true community to others. As a church, we model it to one another. We remind each other of the encouragement and the love that comes when we are submitting ourselves to Christ. But to those who do not yet know, we proclaim this community. This is what Chase read at the beginning in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 17. From now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's to restore, to call back. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus restored your communion with God and saved you from hell so that you might help others experience the same. It is impossible to have true friendship and true community if you do not care about the salvation of those around you. How arrogant would it be to assume that the gospel is capable of saving you but unimportant and incapable of saving those who are around you? But as we talked about earlier, the pervasive desire for community in our culture, is an excellent context to say, I can give you something better. I can explain your longings, and I can attach it to the beauty of Jesus Christ. So I want us to engage in discussions on equality and community and acceptance, but I only want us to do it if we're willing to promote the true love and the true acceptance and the true community through salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, Christianity is relevant 
to our desires for community and friendship because only Christianity makes true friends in eternal communities by saving us from sin. And God has given us the task of calling others to experience that same community with God that we experience through Jesus Christ. So let's do this well. As we gather as GCF on, on, on Wednesdays and on Thursdays at Omnoms and in our discipleship and with our prayer groups, let our community be encouraging and also evangelistic. For we have much to show about what the world seeks to find in community. So let's pray. Lord, we love you. We worship you. Lord, we, uh, we cannot understand the weight of our friends' souls or the weight of our own souls unless you are gracious to reveal it to us. And so Lord, I, I pray and I ask that you help us to understand community um, by showing us the community that Jesus brings us. The restoration of a heart being an alien and a stranger and an enemy to God that Jesus makes us sons and daughters and lovers of God. He makes us children of God. May we know what community looks like because we've seen the God who created us. And Lord, I pray that this distinction is helpful for our own worship and the worship of those around us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.